Joining me today on Coastal Front is Member of Parliament for Langley Aldergrove, Teiko Van Popta. Thanks for coming on today, Teiko. Thank you. Prior to entering politics in the last federal election, you were a reputable lawyer who practiced 30 years with Macquarie Hunter, a law firm in Surrey, BC, and that's actually how we met many years ago. Right. Uh, during this time with the firm, you became a managing partner and you specialized in urban development. You, however, uh, decided to take a pivot um, and you moved into the world of politics. Um, you've got a background in leadership of, of philanthropy and noteworthy, you took, uh, you've held positions with the Surrey Board of Trade and the Downtown Surrey Business Improvement Association. Right. Um, Teiko has also dedicated his time as a volunteer to the ILM, Housing, Ilum, Ilum, Ilum Housing Society, Ilum Housing Society, which is a seniors aging in place campus with locations in Surrey and Chilliwack. Thanks for coming all the way downtown to this big city uh, environment, Teiko. Good to be here. Thank and, you, Andrew. And I'm really looking forward to having this conversation with you today. So thanks for coming on the show. Mm-hmm. So for those listeners that are tuning in, we're going to focus on four categories today. The first one's going to be talking about big versus small government. We're going to, that's going to lead us into a conversation around infrastructure spending, urban development, and then we're going to talk about the cruise industry or the lack thereof. Well, this Liberal government, since Justin Trudeau has become Prime Minister, has spent more money and created more deficits than any other government in our entire history. In fact, before the pandemic, he was running through massive deficits that were going basically unchecked. We had Mm -hmm. an election, we had this uh, pandemic, and it's been gone through the roof now. Mm -hmm. Um, What message do you have to the people that live in your community when it comes? I mean, we're not... We don't have an election right now, but it could be one around the corner. So what message do you have for them with respect to, you know, the conservatives versus the liberals and confidence that, you know, who's going to lead better in, in, a, in the next, forming the next government? Right. I would say take a look at, uh, at the first four years of, uh, of this Trudeau government. Uh, you'll recall back in the, uh, in the campaign leading up to the 2015 election that Mr. Trudeau promised that uh, there were going to be you know, three years of small to medium-sized deficits. That money was going to go to infrastructure spending, which was going to uh, help um, uh, you know, greening of the economy and getting people to work at a time when there was already full employment. So it was a, yeah. quite a puzzle for me. But uh, it's a story that resonated well with the public, and he won a majority government. But now go forward, then a few years, uh, in, by the way, he said by year four, the last year of that mandate, he was going to balance the budget. Well, by year four, the deficit was just growing and growing and growing, and there was no talk at all from any liberal that they were going to balance the budget. As a matter of fact, Mr. Trudeau introduced a new concept into the uh, Canadian conversation, um, something about the, balance, uh, the budget balancing itself. Don't worry about the budget. Right. It'll balance itself, <laughs> if you recall that. Yeah. You know, where that puzzling comment came from, I don't know. But, uh, you know, so, and then leading into the, into, into the, you know, the pandemic, and the government was saying, well, we need to spend money, we need to help Canadians. And, uh, and uh, Bill Morneau at the time, the finance minister said, Canada has the firepower, the economic and the fiscal firepower to be able to do this. Christian Freeland talks the same. Uh, Justin Trudeau talks the same way. And that is true because at the time, right, there was, there was uh, um, you know, they were, they were riding on the coattails of some really strong conservative economic policy. You'll recall Stephen Harper took Canada through the global financial crisis of 2008, 2009. Well, by, the, by 2014, the economy was pretty strong again. Mm-hmm. Uh, and... Uh, and that was a legacy that uh, Mr. Trudeau inherited. 
So it's yeah. not it's, it's no credit to him at all right. yeah. that there was a good you know Remember, that you, you have fiscal firepower. Yeah, yeah, sure. precisely. Yeah. Okay, like going back to the big government versus small government sort of messaging. On the other end of the spectrum, which would be even probably bigger government than the Liberals, would be the NDP if they ever were to be able to form power. Now, yesterday, NDP leader Jagmeet Singh published his letter to the Prime Minister where he asked for the government to do more for Canadians. He highlighted things like offering the provinces and territories assistance with getting the military set up to uh, do federal vaccination clinics. He made reference to uh, making sure that he that the government works with uh, employers, provinces, and territories to provide what they call real paid sick leave. And then he also wants to see the government do more to assure employers and workers that the federal government will provide continued support during this lockdown. Um, I think we can agree that the NDP is great when it comes to ideas, but they lack details. That's always been my criticism. They're great on sort of philosophical ideas, but when it comes to like details and the devil is in the de- you would know better than anybody else a lawyer the devil is in the details so how do you realistically see in an ndp platform um how um how this relates to these covid measures like wh- how would you compare the conservative ideas and policies of how to manage this if you were a form government today versus the ndp well the ndp believe in big government real big government they want the government to do everything, own everything. They don't. They don't like private uh, ownership. They want to ban um, for-profit healthcare uh, because they think that the government can always do better. Well, they are wrong. Uh, I respect them for being idealistic, and as you say, they're small on detail. That's because they know they will not form government. They have never have formed government, at least not federally. So they've never had their big socialist ideas tested. So I just, I don't think it's realistic. I didn't actually read that letter yet. Thanks for bringing it to my attention. I will read it. Uh, But I'm not surprised coming from Mr. Singh. Yeah, okay. Um, Let's talk a minute about uh, the budget. So we finally Mm -hmm. got notice that the federal government is going to release their budget after two years, over two years, on April the 19th. That's right. What do conservatives hope to see in this budget? Or do you even have any hope at all? Uh, well, we're hoping to, do I have any hope at all? I'm, I'm still a hopeful person. <laughs> um, hoping for an election. Well, that too. And, and you know, this, you know, speculation is that uh, that this uh, budget is going to be a platform, you know, you know for, the, uh, for the liberals to then ask the governor general, if there is a governor general, by then right. to actually dissolve parliament. Sure. And then head into an election. So uh, that's what we're expecting. We're, okay. <clears throat> we're at least preparing for that. We will we'll be ready if there's an election called that soon. So this will be a, an election platform budget, probably. I expect that it will be. Yeah. Like, almost no doubt at all yeah. about okay. that, to be honest. But yeah, two years, you know, and, and so we've been hammering away at, in, in question period uh, in the House of Commons about, you know, why is there no budget? And the answer is, well, you know, it keeps being a, a, a moving, you know, the goalposts keep moving. You know, we're not quite sure what we're aiming for. And it is true. It's a very, very dynamic situation. Granted, but you know, still, come up with a budget. Come up with a plan. Tell us what it's going to look like. Sure. You know, I mean, a budget is the best guess as to what it's going to look like, and things are going to change. But come up with a plan. Mm-hmm. Right. And why they haven't done it baffles me, to be honest. So I'm well, really looking forward to this one. Yeah. So am I. Absolutely. Mm-hmm. Well, on that note, one of the th- you said talk about having a plan. One of the plans, or the many plans that the um, Liberal government of of Canada had 
stated they were going to implement was focusing on infrastructure. And they, in fact, they created Canada's Infrastructure Bank. And to the best of my knowledge, I have to admit, I haven't done a ton of research on it, but I understand this bank's been somewhat formed, hasn't done any kind of infrastructure spending, but there's been a lot of money spent in forming this bank. Yeah, good point, yeah. Um, The bureaucracy is there. The bureaucracy. programs haven't been delivered. Yeah. (laughs) Yeah. Now, look, like the concept of infrastructure spending has been proven for many, many years. I mean, yes. 100 years of, of government, form government in Canada, United States, and the UK, and seeing when, when governments spend money on infrastructure, it's good at creating jobs. Um, it helps with commerce, especially in the old days. You create highways, you create roads, you create buildings, bridges. It allows goods to move. Skytrain. Skytrain. And locally. Yeah. yeah. Uh, which is going to lead us into urban development. So let's, mm. but let's talk in sort of big picture infrastructure spending. What's your grade on the uh, Liberal government's success so far in this space? Well, it's, it's not been successful at all. Okay. I recall, you know, going back to the 2015 election, uh, there were going to be, uh, you know, three years of me- small to medium-sized deficits, and that money was going to go towards infrastructure. Well, we got yeah. the debt. We didn't get the infrastructure, right. <laughs> sadly. So, uh, so, yeah, this infrastructure bank, it's, a, it's an interesting concept. Uh, I think it could be workable, but it has not worked. So the Auditor General uh, just a couple of weeks ago issued her report on it saying that it is unaccountable. Uh, The bureaucracy has had a real hard time um, finding shovel-ready projects that they could fund uh, or even whether they have been funded. So it just seems to be in in quite a shambles. Mm -hmm. So no, it is not delivering what they said that it would deliver, very sadly. Now, because this is an area you spent your career on, not so mm. much infrastructure, well, infrastructure, urban development as right. a lawyer. Right. Let's say I snap the fingers and, uh, and Aaron O'Toole is now the Prime Minister of Canada. You guys have a majority government. What's some of the things that Takeo Vavapopta, the MP for uh, Aldergrove, Langley Aldergrove, would want to bring to the table when it comes to the world of infrastructure development and and urban, urban development? Well, thank you for the question. Yeah. Every opportunity I have, I, I uh, talk about the extension of SkyTrain to Langley. Okay. So right now it runs from downtown Vancouver, where we are right now, uh, right through Burnaby, Westminster, over the Fraser River, into Surrey. There are three or four stations in Surrey. It ends at the King George SkyTrain station, right where my office had been for 30 years before I went into politics. Uh, but it needs to be extended all the way down Fraser Highway into Langley. Right now there's, and, and these Uh, big infrastructure projects, urban infrastructure, are always funded three ways, by the municipality or the transit authority, by the province, and by the federal government. So now the first phase of that project has three levels of government commitment to bring it to SkyTrain all the way to the Fleetwood area of Surrey. But when I'm talking to Mike Buda, who is the... um, what is CEO, I think, or executive director of the Mayor's Council on Transit, he said, no, 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 it must continue all the way to Langley. Uh, The municipalities and the Transit Authority are in full support of that. Uh, Mr. Horgan of the NDP is fully in support of that. As a matter of fact, he ran on that uh, in in the last provincial election. And so I've been hammering away at uh, the Federal Minister of Infrastructure, Catherine McKenna, to finally hop on board, make that happen. It's another, it's about $550 million, which seems like a lot of money, right? But out of a debt of $400 billion, you know, like, yeah. what is it, right? <laughs> uh, it is so important. And, and, and uh, you know, 
Langley has, sorry, I, do, I don't mean to just focus on my own writing, but you asked the question, no, so this, I'm going to answer it. Yeah, so, uh, you know, Langley, I think it's good for listeners to know that Langley is one of the fastest growing municipalities. It's part of Metro Vancouver. Yeah. People tend to forget that, right? There's Langley City and Langley Township. They were both part of Metro Vancouver. Mm-hmm. They paid the extra transit tax, you know, at, uh, when we pump, uh, pump up our cars. Yeah. Yeah, you got to go all the way to Abbotsford to get the cheap gas, right? All the way to Abbotsford, yeah, yeah. exactly, to get the cheap <laughs> gas. <laughs> Sounds like you may have done can't, that. So can't can't get into the states to do it anymore. No, no, can't do that anymore. <laughs> so, um, anyways, we're saying, you know, time time, you know, to to bring that out to us. Uh, the population is there. If you drive through Langley, you know, the Willoughby Slopes, you know, the western part of my riding, it is just, it's getting, you know, there's high rises going up there now. Yeah, it's amazing. It, that was farmland when I was a kid in high school. Yeah. Uh, and it needs to be serviced by a good, reliable uh, transit link. So uh, everybody is in favor of that. SkyTrain to Langley. We just need the federal government to come to the table. Yeah. Talking about shovel-ready projects, there's yeah. one. Why did, why hasn't that happened yet? Why, you know? Yeah, you know, I think the case has been made that this is a project that should be done. Come to the table. Yeah, here's somewhere where so the federal government can invest some money in. Very what's your take way. on it? Like, what have you heard? I mean, is are they just not uh, being responsive to the various levels of government that are trying to move this forward? I got to think that the municipal governments are really pushing hard in those communities of of Surrey and Langley to keep the SkyTrain extension going. They really want it, yes. Yeah. That's right. I'm not and, sure and what you mentioned the, that Horgan, you know, campaigned on this. Right. So is it just sitting on Catherine McKenna's lap and her desk in her office and just that's it's stuck there? What are your, what's your take on it? I don't know. I'm going to pick up the phone and give her a call, I think. <laughs> so uh, I, I don't want to speculate what okay. the answer is. So. Okay. <laughs> When it comes to, we're kind of already dove into the urban development area. Now, you spent mm-hmm. 30 years as a lawyer doing mm-hmm. a lot, dealing with a lot of urban development projects and that type of thing. And it's interesting to me, like I was, as you know, when we talked for the first time in a while, like this time last year, mm-hmm. and I hadn't realized that you'd, you'd actually left uh, practicing law to become a politician. Mm-hmm. And uh, I'm really curious to know, like, you know, you you were managing director for many years. You were the really accomplished lawyer here in town. Well, what drove you to, to to go into politics? I've always been interested in politics. Uh, municipally, I supported a number of candidates over the years. Uh, yeah. Provincially, I've always followed that uh, pretty carefully. Uh, and I was on the EDA board, right, the the uh, Electoral District Association board in my riding of Langley Aldergrove for quite a few years. I was good friends with Mark Warawa, my predecessor. Uh, and I actually put my name forward for the nomination in the neighboring riding, Cloverdale, Cloverdale-Langley okay. City it's called, uh, when it was a newly created riding uh, just prior to the 2015 election. I did not win the nomination. Okay. <laughs> so I thought that was the end of my political career. But then uh, uh, Mark Warawa announced that he would not be running again. Uh, and I was right there, and so and this I, was the t- 2019 election. Right, yeah. and this was the, Mark Rowe was the federal MP that was representing your riding before. That's right. Yeah, okay, that's right. So he's he uh, said he was not going to run again, and so I, I was ready, willing, and able. So I jumped in, and uh, my career was at that point where you know it was time for the next adventure. Okay, so you weren't doing it for money. 
Not to, not for fame. No, not not, not for, for money. Fortune. Not for fame. No, no, no <laughs> not that. Okay. No, I love Langley. I grew up there. Uh, I went to high school there. I know so many people there. Yeah. Uh, and uh, you know the opportunity presented itself. You know, as you say in politics, a lot of a lot of it is just opportunity. You know, like right. you know, are you there at the right time at at the right place? And it just you know everything lined up for me. So, what has probably been the biggest shocker for you in going into politics, having spent thirty years as a lawyer? <laughs> Well, I, you know, I would say, like the obvious answer is, you know, that the pandemic hit five months into right. my, yeah, yeah. you know, so like it's, people go, how did your life change with the pandemic? I go, not really at all, right? I mean, it's uh, like, you know, it's the only thing I know in right. politics. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> so um, I don't know, what's, what's the biggest change? Um, the blazing speed at which government runs? That. And the efficiencies? Uh, yeah, the efficiency or the, or the lack thereof. Um, I, you know, really good camaraderie in, in caucus. I really enjoy that. That's not yeah. a surprise. I mean, that was a pleasant surprise, if yeah. anything. Um, but I think, it, like, you know, we're, it's a house of commons. We're all commoners. Yeah. You know? I'm a lawyer. I come with some expertise, but other people have a totally different expertise or life skills. Yeah. And, uh, and I know it's just a really interesting dynamic that I guess sort of surprised me a little bit. Yeah. Uh, you know, I hear speeches in the House of Commons. And go, hmm, I never th- would have thought of that. You know, but my life's experience is so different than my colleague, right? Who, who was a farmer his whole life. You know, a very yeah. successful farmer. Yeah. But, uh, you know, or you know, people who were uh, you know college professors or or bankers or you know business people. Yeah. So I mean, that that's I guess a bit of a surprise that, you know, I see so many different dimensions of Canadian culture and society. Yeah, so it's a pretty broad mix of individuals from different walks of life. It is. Yeah, that's neat. Yeah. Erin um, O'Toole's your, uh, your, your new leader. Yes. Um, have you got to meet Aaron yet? Uh, oh yeah, several occasions. So yeah. I actually endorsed him for the, for the leadership. I thought he was the best person of the, of the pack. Yeah. Uh, uh, I'm very big on, uh, on Canadian national unity and I thought that he had the best story to tell there. Okay. I know he ran a very strong campaign in Quebec, which might seem odd coming from a British Columbia MP, but I want our party to do very well in Quebec. Yeah, sure. And I think that so what do you he like about had Aaron? the right story. Uh, he's a military guy. He's an ordinary guy. You know, he spent 12, sorry, more than 12 years. I, I don't know his whole life story, but yeah. in the military, he flew helicopters. Uh, and then he spent, uh, that was the 12 years as, uh, as a lawyer in, in uh, downtown Toronto. Some pretty interesting clients, some pretty interesting files that we talked yeah. about from time to time. And then he jumped into politics and uh, he's just a real down-to-earth guy, common sense guy. Um, I think he would make a great prime minister. Great. Within the conservative parties, it's a fairly big party, obviously. It's that and the liberal party, the two big ones. There's some really interesting characters. Uh, any in particular that you really like, that you're like, you know, I, I like this person. I think they're good for our brand. They're good for our party. Everybody loves Pierre Polyev, right, who yeah. was on your show course, earlier. Yeah. I brought him here well, actually yeah, that you day. Got, so. You got him here, so thank yeah, you. That, yeah, yeah. So, uh, yeah, he's a great guy. Yeah. So He's the Thai Domi for the Conservative Party. And score <laughs> goals and fight. That you know, sort of thing, right? Yeah, he's, he's a real scrapper. And yeah. He's a great public speaker. He's so good in Might be aging period. myself saying Thai Domi. Man, I got to get yeah. <laughs> Um, His life's experience is so different than mine. Uh, you know, I'm entering into politics later in life, sort of at yeah. the end of a career. And uh, the first time I met him, I said, Pierre, what did you do before politics? He said, not much. <laughs> right, so, you know, university and I'm 
sure he had a job, but then he got into politics pretty early, right? So it's a life's career for him, and he's yeah. very, very good at it. Yeah, he's very good at it. Yeah. What about other any other any other people within the conservative party that you're like, wow, this this person's great for our, great for our party, great for our brand? Uh, Michelle Rempel, of course, is yeah. is really dynamic. She's from Calgary, one you know, right in downtown Calgary somewhere. Yeah. So she's a real scrapper as well. You know, performed very well in question period. Great public speaker, really good profile. Yeah. So yeah, I'm impressed with her, but uh, you know, a number of other people. Uh, uh, you know, I don't like. You know, I don't want to name them all. Yeah, right? but, that's uh, okay. That's yeah, good. Yeah, you know, some so, some really good guys from Quebec as well. You know, I've really gotten to learn to yeah. love and respect. Now you're going to run in this next election again. I will. Okay, because um, you got to be able to have at least some chance to to be an MP outside of COVID. <laughs> See what it's like to actually be in Ottawa with everybody else. Yeah, precisely. You know, yeah. uh, Parliament actually sitting with us in our chairs. That would be. Uh, yeah. Fun experience. Yeah. <laughs> um, when you look at the Conservative Party and you look at the Liberal Party, for those sort of swing voters out there, let's because I would assume that to pick up more votes, you got two two options. You either get conservative voters that just didn't come out to vote to get them out to vote. And that's more of just a, you know trying to motivate them that they've got to make this uh, commitment to come out and vote. But the other part is getting people to swing over to your side. And there really isn't any other right-wing parties in the federal politics. I mean, you've got kind of over on the left is the Greens, the NDPs, and the Liberals, and then over on the right, you've got the Conservative Party. Mm -hmm. yeah, and amongst interesting that, observation. Yeah, and amongst that group, I would argue that you know people who are voting Green are probably generally pretty hardcore Green, and they're not likely going to swing off of the Green vote. And same with probably most people in NDP. So my question to you is, what is the message you would deliver to somebody listening to this podcast today to sort of really truly contrast you as a candidate and then you as a party um, between the conservatives and the liberals. Right. So interesting, interesting analysis. Um, you know, you're saying right and, and left, you know. So, you know, the conservatives like to think, we like to think of ourselves as center-right and, and, you know, historically the liberals have been center-left, but they've become much more left. I think that Mr. Trudeau is trying to squeeze the NDP right off the road, you know, <laughs> into the ditch. So, um, you know, we're thinking that maybe there is, you know, some, you know, middle people, you know, that would, you know, that don't like that, you know, that don't want to go with that real hard left turn and, uh, and want to stay center. Well, we're the party for that. Uh, our leader, Mr. O'Toole, has said uh, on many occasions that he said, we want more Canadians when they see themselves in the mirror to see a conservative. And we, want, we need to deliver that message. We need to explain to them why they should come out to vote for us. I know he's really reaching out to, you know, he's, he, comes, he was raised in, in a union family, and so he's really reaching out to that, uh, right. to, to that demographic. And I think it's a, it's a good story to tell. You know, like, you know, union people are hardworking people. They just want to raise their family and, uh, you know, buy a decent home in the suburbs somewhere and, uh, you know, drive a car and you know, have the kids go to good schools. Sure. Uh, you know, that sounds like a conservative to me. Yeah. So okay. One thing that we're going to have to do better, Andrew, to be honest, is yeah. uh, is uh, we need to be clearer on our environmental policy. Okay. Uh, so in the last election, you know, I was just running, and, you know, so the platform was presented to me. I had to study it. And I, I thought this is a, like, it was a very, you know, the, the, the chapter dealing with the environment I thought was really good. We just didn't sell it very well. So sell it now. Sell it now. Yeah. yeah. What so that, that's what we need. What is it? What is the environment like? Like 
big picture? What's the environmental really policy? Good How does it so, differ from you know, the Liberal Party or yeah, the NDP? So we're, we're, we're working on it right now. Like, it's got to be more than, I'm sorry, it's just not fully developed, right? Okay. Although, you know, we could be facing elections and we will be ready. It is being worked on. So what would you, what's important to you when it comes to the environment? Um, I... I I think that we you know need to be you know thinking much more you know in an environmentally sustainable way. Mm -hmm. So you know does that mean you know shutting down industry? No, absolutely not at all. Right, but creating new industries, just creating industries that are more efficient, which brings me back to one of my favorite topics: uh, urban development. Yeah, uh, you know more more Canadians living you know closer to work. You sure. know, close good transit links. Uh, you know, 80% of Canadians now live in cities. So let's get cities functioning in a much more green and sustainable way. That goes a long way, mm -hmm. long ways to solving the problem. Get more people out of the cars, more into transit, electric buses, SkyTrain, whatever. Yeah. That's a big part of the solution. I agree with you. Um, and I agree that urban development is really important, especially considering that... Uh, it's not for everybody. I get that. Yeah. Right? But I think it was about yeah. maybe like 10 years ago or so that uh, some economist somewhere, somebody predicted that apparently we've now tipped over to more people living globally in urban environments than they do in rural environments. Right. And, but with this, this continued trend towards growth of cities right. and decline in the, in the rural environments, I mean, look at Langley. It's, mm -hmm. It used to be rural. It's mm -hmm. now pretty much becoming urbanized. Mm -hmm. um, so when you look at uh, spending in, in um, things like transit, generally this is an issue targeted for, like an issue brought up at the local level. First of all, at the municipal right. level, and then next at the... Uh, provincial level um so what really what, where do you see the um role of the federal government and especially if it was a conservative government if you take it back to your home riding of, of langley aldergrove where do you see that urban development piece because is it just writing the check to fund it is that all it is or is there more to it than that i think there's more to it than that um you know, we, we, we talked about the federal government working together with the municipalities and the provinces to come up with the best plan. Ottawa does not know best. Mm -hmm. right? That's not our approach. I think it's a really good take. Yeah, yeah. but, uh, but you know, Ottawa does have big, you know, a big purse, and they hold the purse strings. Uh, and that money is needed, and I think that it should be available for municipalities. But I think there can be conditions put on it. Uh, you know, show us what your plan is to open up more more housing. You know, we have a housing affordability crisis, not only here in Metro Vancouver, but right across the country now. So, you know, young young people, you know, dreaming of maybe owning a home one day, well, it's become all an almost impossible dream. It should not be like that. That's not the Canada that I want my grandkids to grow up in. Right. Most of my kids are okay, right? But, yeah. uh, but uh, you know, the, the next generation, so how are they going to be able to live here in Metro Vancouver? Well, you know, I'm a, I'm a conservative, so I look for Market solutions, if the price of something is too high, housing, in this example, then maybe it's because demand is exceeding supply, or supply is not keeping up with demand, right? Put sure. it that way. Yeah. So why not, why not increase the, the supply? And a great way to do that in an urban setting is uh, you know, something that urban planners call transit-oriented development. Okay. So let's what is get that? Transit-oriented oriented. Transit Oriented development. Let's okay. get uh, let's get cities built. You know, uh, uh, residential neighborhoods, but all also mixed with commercial neighborhoods, so that people can live close to home, have good jobs close to home, uh, be able to get around. Uh, you know, maybe you know without a car, for example. Sure. You know, like happens here in Vancouver. You know, why doesn't yeah. that? Why can that not happen in in my home riding of Langley? Yeah. 
Well, and I mean, COVID's really accentuated this need to be able to have a mix of, um, like to have support of, um, uh, of retail and commercial support in a residential environment because so many people are working from home today. Exactly true. Yeah. Yeah, so that's an interesting observation too. I was just reading in the paper this morning that um, transit ridership is way down was down sure. it was down 80 percent at one time it's bouncing back again but it's not nearly where it was before yeah and uh, people are predicting it may never at least not in the foreseeable future get above 80 percent of what it used to be but it's not nothing yes right and the city's going to keep on growing yeah canada's population grows by 325,000 per year and a good number of those come into right here our hometown metro vancouver right so how do you drop you know 40 50,000 people into an already very crowded piece of real estate yeah sure you know well that's uh, the demand the, side uh, of it that you're talking about take that's the demand side and so it's, one of the things i'm perplexed by is the number of politicians out there who don't believe that you can s- solve a situation like affordable housing by just creating more supply. They somehow twist it to say, no, it's more than that. And I don't understand that. Like I'm, I'm like yourself, I'm a very much a free market person. Mm-hmm. I think basic economics would tell you that like if you have rising costs because of rising demand, mm-hmm. create more supply, prices mm-hmm. have to drop. Mm-hmm. Why do you think it is that so many politicians don't believe that or wanna try and make their voters think that it's something more than just a simple supply demand issue? I don't know. I'm baffled by it. Maybe to I'm a conservative. Their own jobs. Yeah, maybe. Yeah, maybe that. Maybe it's you know the short four-year election cycle. You know, so the, we want a good short-term solution instead of something longer term. Yeah, that might be part of it. Um, you know, getting levels of government to work together is not easy because right? yeah. everybody sort of has their own turf. You know, one yeah. city might go, yeah, I want to develop this. Another city goes, well, we don't really want to because that's not what's going to get us re- reelected next in the next yeah. uh, municipal election, right? So it's a bit of that, right? Well, so, speaking about so, that, let me use, can I use that for an example, yeah. Takeo, and a question I have for you. So um, I was talking to a real estate developer for another podcast we're going to do with a couple city councillors here in Vancouver about the absolute nightmare of trying to get development permits here in the city of Vancouver. Um, what's it like in Langley? What do you hear from your constituents there? I mean, you worked as a lawyer there for many years mm-hmm. in that community. Um, is it easy for a development permit in uh, Langley today? No. Why not? Maybe easier than Vancouver. I'm, I'm not yeah. too uh, yeah. too familiar with the Vancouver market. Is, it a, is that a municipal issue? Is that a provincial issue? It's is a it municipal both? issue. Okay. No, so municipalities have to hire more people, more plan checkers, more, uh, more, uh, you know, d- uh, develop development people. Yeah. And uh, you know, maybe they have to pay them better, uh, you know, because the private developers are stealing them away from city hall. <laughs> so it's a <laughs> bit of a vicious cycle. I get that, amazing. right? So, yeah. So it's you know, none of this is easy to solve. Sure. But still, it takes leadership, and I think that the federal government does have a role to play there. So let's say you guys are in government. Conservative Party, Aaron O'Toole is the is the uh, is the Prime Minister, and he says, "Okay, Taco, you're in charge of urban development, mm-hmm. um, and you've got the big, as you said, you, you hold the purse strings. What do you mm-hmm. do? Do you call up John Horgan and say, all right, John, here's the deal: you mm-hmm. don't get any more money for uh, health care uh, or something else. You know, holding this kind of like, I might, I don't think that we would t- tie in health care or anything okay. like that, but." Urban infrastructure spending. Yeah. We would, you know, put some strings to that. Okay, that's what I would do, anyways. I'm yeah. not the prime minister, but uh, yeah, you know, I would say if if you want federal money for this big in, uh, infrastructure project, 
explain to us how that is going to increase a housing supply so right. that people in your riding can actually have a dream of owning, a realistic dream of owning a home, yeah. a condo, townhouse, single family home, whatever. When you mentioned um, shovel ready projects, how important is that in deciding where this money goes? Uh, well, you know, shovel-ready project already has approval, at least according to my definition, yeah. approval from the other levels of government. Yeah. So there again, right, I don't believe in an Ottawa knows best uh, policy, but, you know, if, if the province and the cities come to the federal government with a project that looks like it's ready to go, then, you know, let the federal, right you know, the there's a perfect opportunity for the federal government then to write the check, make it happen. Right. Okay. All right. This is really good. Let's pivot. All right. To um, the cruise industry, which I think is interesting because there aren't any cruise ships in uh, Langley Aldergrove. No. <laughs> Good point. Yeah, so <laughs> I don't think, right? I have a much broader perspective than just my own writing, of course. So yeah. uh, I, I know so I took look, a, real, uh, a real interest in... Uh, yeah. Well, you, you mentioned as we came, you came down here, we were looking out the window uh, where the cruise ships normally come. And it's been a real... Uh, it's You know, we haven't seen a cruise ship show up here for better part of a year and apparently we're not going to see cruise ships now until 2022 that's right um now you brought up a really interesting comment to me that i a lot i think a lot of listeners wouldn't be aware of which is an act in the united states around mm-hmm. the cruise can you can you speak to that i think it's a good segue into this topic so mm-hmm. can you explain to listeners what this is yeah so the americans have a piece of legislation and i forget the technical name of it but you know, some people refer to it as the jones act it's about 100 years old uh, and it's uh, it's l- it's job protection legislation, job protection for Americans. So it says that if a, if a passenger vessel is going to go from one American port to another American port, it must be built by Americans, and it must be provisioned by Americans, and it must be staffed by Americans, and it must carry an, uh, carry an American flag. And that was right to protect the shipbuilding industry right. in, in the United States. Uh, but then cruising comes along many years later, and people weren't anticipating uh, in those days that the, that there was going to be a whole industry around cruising into Alaska. And so what happens is then, uh, if if a cruise ship leaves Alaska, uh, sorry, leaves Seattle to go to let's say Juneau, Alaska, it must be American built. Well, there are no cruise ships that are American American built. They're built in Poland. They're built yeah. in Italy. And they're uh, definitely not staffed by. Americans. And they're not staffed by Americans. No, they're probably staffed they're, they're, by people from the Philippines, yeah. Indonesia. Their guests are from America, probably. Their guests are from America, that's right, yeah. yeah. So uh, anyways, but there was a very, very nice workaround. It worked out very conveniently for everybody, particularly for Canada, that Canada is right on the way (laughs) between between Seattle and Juneau, Alaska, or Anchorage, wherever the cruise ship might be going. Uh, So every time, and every, you know, so a cruise ship stops in at the port of Victoria. There's a whole cruise ship facility there. Or just outside your window here, right? The cruise ship yeah. facility in Vancouver. And every time one of these ships on its way up to Alaska stops by, another million dollars pumped into our economy. Right? A million, a million dollars. million dollars. Every time a cruise ship parks here for 24 hours, 48 hours. These are the numbers that I'm told. Yeah. I do, I I've heard no the same number. Yeah, yeah, so, you know, 3,000 passengers on board, do the sure. math, it's probably yeah, worth About $300 a passenger, it's, not, it's, a, it's a, t- a very attainable number, yeah, for sure. Yeah, so something like that. Uh, but, you know, it's also the provisioning of the ship, you know, mm-hmm. so people working in the agricultural industry here in the Fraser Valley, you know, they're supplying the channelers who are yeah. then supplying the ships, right? Yeah, so, sure. Uh, but you know, the, you know, bus drivers and tour operators and restaurants. There's a, there's a really wonderful First Nations uh, art gallery 
down in Gastown that my wife has been to a number of we've got a few pieces from there. Their business is barely staying alive and their majority of their sales are to cruise ship passengers. Exactly. And some of those tickets that they write, some of the pieces of art that they ship off, I mean, they'll have somebody come off some wealthy family from the States. They'll see this beautiful art. They'll write a check for $10,000 and have it shipped to their home. So there's yeah, an example. There you go. And you yeah. get up to a million dollars pretty quickly at that yeah. rate. So. Yeah, yeah. Um, so anyways, uh, the, you know, the whole cruise industry worldwide has been shut down and it was yeah. the right, right response to a COVID crisis or right, to a pandemic, which is worldwide. Uh, but now the Americans are miles ahead of us in getting their citizens vaccinated. They're vaccinating. Like they're, th- they're vaccinating 30 million people a day. Something like that. Yeah. It's, it's, it's burst, almost the entire population of Canada gets vaccinated daily now in the United exactly. States. BC, so, by contrast, yesterday, I got to speak up about this. BC <laughs> yesterday vaccinated 18,000 people. Right. And why is that? Because we do not have a pharmaceutical industry here in Canada. Well, it, it's been bungled like seven ways till Sunday by the provincial government and the health authorities, in my view. Uh, by the delivery thereof. But the delivery. Uh, but yeah. the production yeah. thereof would be, a, would be a federal matter. And, yeah. uh, and the federal government uh, under Mr. Trudeau has just completely yeah. uh, devastated the pharmaceutical industry. There is no yeah. pharmaceutical industry. Absolutely. In and I think people are really surprised by that because, uh, you know, we, th- we think of, of ourselves as one of the leading industrialized nations. So why don't we have a pharmaceutical industry? Well, we didn't know that yeah. right, until there's a pandemic and we yeah. need vaccines. <laughs> so we are now, I think we've moved up from about 50 something to 41 in the, in, in the listing of countries who are getting our citizens. Yeah, vaccinated. the vaccinations per hundred people. Yeah, exactly. we're still right. so, way down the list. Like it's just embarrassing, really, yeah. to be honest. Now, the Americans, taking this back to the cruise. Okay, so back yeah. to the cruise. So Americans are now having realistic conversations about relaunching their cruising industry. Yes. Not only here on the West Coast, but throughout. You know, yeah. I mean, the East Coast, same thing, or down into to the Caribbean. But, uh, to, you know, I'm going to just uh, keep my comments to the West Coast here. Uh uh, our Minister of Transport, Mr. Al Gabra, uh, about a month ago, month and a half ago, declared that there will be that that the ban on cruise ships uh, into Canada will last for another year, right? As you said, right until February 2022. Mm-hmm. And the Americans are going, "What? You, you didn't consult with us about that? We're ready to, you know, at least rescue the second half yeah. of our Alaska cruise season, and we sure. need Victoria, or we need Vancouver, or we need Prince Rupert. You know, there's a cruise facility there too, right? To, for us to be able to comply with our own internal legislation." It's a layup uh, for the Canadian government, and the Canadian economy. You think, right? Yeah. So, Anyways, there are a couple of senators now in Alaska who have introduced legislation in Washington to to somehow have a waiver or an amendment, right? Maybe just a waiver for this year for this for this restriction in the Jones Act. You know, you know why should we have our hands tied uh, by you know the by the Canadian government? Mm-hmm. You know, like you know why do we need sure. them? Maybe yeah. it's our own legislation; we can amend it. Yeah. And so this is a, a question that I brought up in question period a couple of weeks ago. I said, does the Minister of Transport realize that, you know, that this, that his poorly thought out uh, policy uh, and declaration could do serious and, and permanent harm to the Canadian tourism industry here in the West Coast, East Coast, same thing. Sure. Uh, you know, because as you know, right, it, it, if, if, if it becomes a temporary solution and if it works for the Americans, there's a danger that it could become permanent. Yeah, most things that are temporary become permanent. No, it seems to be yeah. that way. Yeah. So now does that and, say... If and that so what is ha- that, so what you're saying what is a, a potential risk to, um, to here locally to the, 
city of Vancouver, the people of the Metro Vancouver area, the province, and naturally the, the country, is cruise ships just stop coming here? Uh, well, it would never stop completely because yeah. you know, there are a lot of really great cruises that originate in Vancouver and go up to Alaska. You know, okay. my wife and I went on one of those. It was beautiful. Yeah. Uh, and Vancouver is a beautiful place. Victoria is a beautiful place. Uh, so it will always attract tourists and it will always attract people who want to do, you know, the shorter seven-day cruise mm-hmm. <clears throat> uh, directly out of Vancouver. So, But, uh, you know, 40%, 40%, I think it is, uh, of the cruise ships that come into Vancouver or Victoria originated in the U.S. Okay. Right. So if if even just some of those, you know, <laughs> start to build their their tours around, uh, you know, what is the temporary, what could become a, t- uh, a permanent fix, then that is going to have a serious impact on our tourism here mm-hmm. on the West Coast. Well, I want to bring take, that to the attention. Of the I think industry. it's really a good point because take I think there was about maybe 15 years ago there was a lot of talk about the cruise industry 15 20 years ago and competing against Seattle. Mm-hmm. And the fact that Seattle, and I don't know if it was done at a federal or provin- uh, state level, but there was a lot of money being put into their cruise, their um, their uh, dock facilities right. or wherever the cruise cruises, uh, what a ship, uh, what do they call it, a docking location? Yeah, I guess. Um, cruise facility, cruise I think. Facility. Cruise ship facility. Cruise I think ship facility. And there was a big worry about the, the tourist industry here in Vancouver that even if we just lost like 10 or 15% of the cruises to Seattle, um, it would be a huge economic loss to our local tourist industry. It would be. And it sounds like that's what you're suggesting today. I'm suggesting that it could be a serious problem. Is so, it going to kill the industry altogether? No, but it could be a real kick in the kneecaps to the industry. Yeah. So what's the solution? Just to basically reverse that comment and say, we're going to be willing to work with the Americans if they're willing to get going on the cruise industry. So I've been calling on the Minister of Transport to at least pick up the phone and contact his uh, counterparts in the U.S. and see if there is some sort of a temporary solution. One that has been brought to my attention by people in the cruising industry, uh, by the association, was uh, a concept of a technical stop. So a technical stop would be a cruise ship, let's say, coming into this port here, tying up, nobody disembarks, because we're we're still in the middle of a pandemic, uh, whereas the Americans are quite a bit ahead of us uh, through that process. Uh, but at least, you know, maybe reprovision the ship, but nobody disembarks. Then the ship continues after a few hours on its way up to uh, up to Alaska, and that apparently would satisfy the Jones Act requirements. Mm. So that's just a great solution. Sure. So why aren't we talking about that? Yeah. Why aren't we, you know, doing the best that we can to help our Americans? Yeah. Yeah, what they want to do. Yeah, well, especially because that tourism piece brings up a lot, brings a lot of uh, to our economy, brings a lot and our jobs, mm-hmm. a lot of jobs. Right. To take to to wrap this up, we do have a little bit of time. I'd like to talk about Bill C twenty one. Is it? Yes. Um, and now, you just for clarity, you're not a firearms holder yourself. Um, neither am I, but it's I, I believe. Okay, um, so. Yeah, you're right. Yeah. Okay, so uh, yeah, I'm, I'm not a I'm not a firearms person at all. Yeah. Although I do now have my pal license, so oh, okay. I'll tell you the story about that. Sure. So, uh, when I first started campaigning, uh, I was surprised how many people in my riding are gun enthusiasts, hunters, or sports shooters. We have a Langley Rod and Gun Club. Uh, we've got the Langley Range, which is the shooting range, and people are passionate about this. And uh, one person I was talking to. Uh, was asking me questions, and he said, Taiko, clearly you don't know very much about the firearms, uh, you know, the sports shooting uh, community. And I said, you're right, I don't. 
how can I learn? And he said, why don't you take the PAL course, right? P-A-L, Possession and Acquisition License. Of course, anybody who has a firearm, uh, who goes hunting or who's a sports shooter must get that license. It's uh, sponsored by the RCMP uh, and, uh, and it requires a criminal records check. So I took the course okay. just on the weekend. I actually went with my 12-year-old uh, grandson because his dad is, really? uh, is a hunter. So yeah, the two of us went together and, uh, and we both passed the course. He got a slightly better mark than I did. Because <laughs> <laughs> memory is better. He could remember all the names of the types of yeah. firearms and guns and shotguns and all that sort of stuff. Uh, but anyways, I, uh, I passed the course. I submitted my application to the RCMP for a criminal records check. And interestingly, it requires my, my wife to actually sign, right, to authorize me to apply for this license. Why is that? I think because, you know, to, you know, to, you know, to, I, I suppose, I'm not sure why. I think maybe Mass to, violence or I'd, I'd speculate to, no. uh, you know, to, you know, as a, as a tool against family violence, I right. suppose. Yeah, sure. Right? So, okay. right, so the significant so other has to say, yes, I approve my husband to actually get this license. Yeah. So yeah, she made me wait a couple of days, but uh, <laughs> she finally signed off. And uh, so they ran the criminal records check. I now have my little card that okay. says I can actually go out and buy a gun if I want. Yeah. So I don't now, know if I ever will, uh, but I've got lots of in invitation to go out hunting. So. so talk about Bill. So that's good background story on that. Mm -hmm. uh, thank you for that. So let's, for the listeners who don't, aren't familiar with Bill C-21, can you just give a layman's terms of what this is? So Bill C-21 uh, puts further restrictions on, on gun ownership. Uh, and one thing that I learned in taking this course is that uh, the community is already subjected to very, very stiff regulations about gun ownership, gun acquisition, um, uh, firearm storage, uh, transporting it, you know, from point A to point B. If you're going to go to a shooting range, you have to go directly there. You can't stop off at the drugstore on your way up, for example. It's got to be, uh, you know, the, the way it needs to be stored. I think it needs to be in the trunk of your car or at least in the back somewhere. Uh, so Bill C-21 adds even more restrictions, and it bans a whole lot of firearms, which you know, which the government says are, you know, they, they use the term military-style weapons, right, which is an undefined term. And so the people that I talk to in the, uh, in the hunting and the sports shooting community say, well, you know, my, my rifle or my shotgun now is illegal. It's on the banned list. What happened? You know, why is the government pointing their finger at us who are already law-abiding citizens? Why don't they go... Uh, after people who are really committing firearms crimes in the country. You know, why, why aren't they going after people who are smuggling guns in, uh, into Canada illegally? Right, there's a, a, Bill C-21 also includes a gun buyback program. We don't have the details of that yet. But it's, it, it will buy back these now illegal guns and firearms from people who are legal owners until this law comes into place. And now they're going to have to to sell them back to the government. But you know, the point is that the people who are actually committing firearms crimes are already not obeying these laws. They're not sure going they to yeah, turn in their guns, yeah. uh, no matter how much the government's going to pay for yeah. them. You know, that's the whole point. Uh, and so we are saying that, why not take all the money that is going to be used for this buyback program and the administration thereof, and use it to do something that is actually going to 
keep Canadians safer, like stop the importation of illegal firearms into the country. Okay. Most firearms that are used in a crime, in a firearms-related crime, is uh, is with a firearm that was imported out of the U.S. Not imported, smuggled, smuggled into smuggled Canada. into Canada. So we're saying, turn your attention there. That's actually what's going to keep Canadians safer, mm-hmm. not putting even further restrictions on people who are already law-abiding and safety-conscious. Right. Wow, that's really interesting. And that's uh, I, I didn't know the stat of it. Well, I mean, make it makes sense that these guns, because they're probably all registered, right? If you if you have a if you're a legal firearms owner, I'm assuming your gun is registered. It's uh, yes, it's it's registered somehow. Yeah, yes. yeah. Um, so, so we don't have a long gun registry, but uh, you know you do need to get a license to acquire it, yeah. and uh, and the source can be found. Mm-hmm. There's a lot more. Um, there's been a lot of gang shootings in the last couple of months here mm-hmm. in Metro Vancouver, mm-hmm. um, and uh, yeah, so we're saying let's empower the police and the and and CBSA to actually tackle that problem. Sure, yeah, because that's an interesting point that you've made, which is that that the majority uh, of these criminal um, gun violent criminal events are being done with illegal firearms. Not with firearms that are owned by people who have a PAL license like I do. Right. <laughs> so it really kind of defeats the purpose. That sort of you're defeats just, the purpose. You're, it's you're, a, just, you're just um, beating up the people who are actually law-abiding citizens. Right. Right. Yeah. goes further than that. Uh, Bill C-21 would also ban some paintball guns and, and, and airsoft guns. Uh, these are toys, right? But right. they but they're designed to look like replicas, and so you know any any airsoft gun that looks like you know it might be you know some but, semi-automatic like, weapon is now on the banned list. Right. Well, to to be devil's advocate here, I do follow the VPD and um, in particular Howard Chow, um, who's the um, uh, was the vice chief. I don't know what you call it, but he's like right below the chief of the mm-hmm. VPD and. He often posts pictures of replica handguns mm-hmm. um, that people in, often in the downtown east side are carrying on them. Um, what are your thoughts about that? I mean, they do have to deal with this problem um, of, I guess, what would be a, a completely legal piece of plastic, but mm-hmm. it looks like a gun. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it looks scary. Uh, yeah. So, someone pointed out to me that a you know, broomstick in a paper bag looks scary too, you know, like you don't know what it is. Right. right. So, I don't know that that actually solves the problem. Right. I'm a little bit surprised, to be honest, that uh, that there's little regulation about the airsoft industry. You know, I guess, mm. I guess they're, they're toys, right? They can't do serious damage, yeah. but they can look scary. Yeah. Well, Takeo, this has been great. I really appreciate coming in today. We've covered a lot of topics from uh, big versus small government, infrastructure spending, urban development, cruise industry, and got into the guns as well. We had time mm-hmm. for that. So, um, uh if people want to get involved, especially if there is going to be an election soon and they live in your riding, how would they get involved in helping you out? I'm easy to find on the Internet, so yeah. uh, please reach out to, to, to me and to my, uh, my campaign office, which we'll be setting up pretty soon. Yeah. Uh, and we would love to have more volunteers come out. Well, Takeo Van Popta, you are the MP for Langley Aldergrove and a longtime friend of mine. I really appreciate you coming on the show today. Mm, Best of luck to you. Yeah, and I hope that you uh, you win in a second round so you can finally have some time in Ottawa outside of COVID. Exactly. Looking forward to that. Best of luck with everything, Takeo. Thank you.